Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are covering several events of the last week of Jesus's ministry. We are covering Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 13. Now, we have chosen to depart a little bit from Come, Follow Me, which is going chapter by chapter. I get that. That's a wonderful way to go, but it's really hard to break up his last week staying with chapters. So Mike and I are addressing the days of his final week, and today is Thursday. Today is Atonement Thursday. He will be crucified on Friday. He'll be in the tomb Saturday and rise on Sunday. So today we're going to address the events of Thursday, from the Last Supper to his prayer going out to Gethsemane. We'll briefly mention Gethsemane, but we'll talk doctrine of atonement in our next podcast, and then we'll talk the arrest that night. We'll end Thursday with him being arrested and taken into custody. Now, here's what we're not going to do. We are not going to cover John's summary of the Last Supper in this podcast. We'll do that next week. So we'll spend some time in our next podcast talking about the doctrine of atonement. We'd like to just deal with that after we talk about John's version of the Last Supper. John wrote after the fact when his eyes were open and he realized so many things that he had missed the first time around that almost seems to be separate from the events of the Last Supper. John's book is 21 chapters long, and a good chunk of that is Last Supper. If we start in 12, as he moves into Jerusalem, and we go all the way to 17, which is the intercessory prayer he utters with his disciples before he goes out to Gethsemane, that's six of the 21 chapters. So we are not going to cover John's summary of the Last Supper in this podcast. We'll do that next week. Today, we're going to focus on the events of Thursday, one of the greatest days ever on planet Earth, where men and women will be redeemed from death and hell because of what he did in a garden called Gethsemane. But let's do the events that led up to that garden, and we really kind of begin with several events that occurred while he was with his disciples in that Last Supper. So according to the synoptics, it's the last day before Passover, and so Jesus is going to prophesy of his death. This is in Matthew 26, 1 and 2, and Mark 14, 1, and it reads in Matthew... It came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the feast of Passover and the son of man is betrayed to be crucified. And in the context of this, Matthew reports of the conspiracy to kill Jesus. And you can read that in Matthew 26, three through five. Robert J. Matthew says, the Jewish leaders made several formal attempts to arrest and dispose of Jesus before the feat was actually accomplished. The record shows that the Pharisees held several councils and consulted with one another to plot the death of Jesus. When he was finally betrayed by Judas and taken captive, it was the culmination of more than two years of planning. And Jesus is continually talking about this. This is going to happen. We're now in Jerusalem. It's Passover time. And 
I'm going to be taken, or as he says in John, mine hour has come. Now, in the synoptics, there's this message about Judas and his promise to turn Jesus over to the enemy. This is the way Matthew records it. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. And so in the gospel narratives, they do discuss the motives of Judas and the motives that they put on Judas for his betrayal of Jesus have to do with money. Many people read this as his main motive was money. And this is possible, of course. I mean, certainly could have happened. And that's kind of the way it's portrayed. It's also good to know that the message of 30 pieces of silver is related to the discussion in Zechariah 11. And so I just want to present an alternate view besides money as to why he would betray Jesus, or as it uses in the Greek, turn him over. That's kind of how it's discussed. And I don't know if I'm right. I'm just opening this idea because I'm thinking out loud here going, okay, if I watched Jesus raise people from the dead. Like I've seen this. I've watched him walk on water and I've seen him multiply loaves and fishes that are worth a lot more than 30 pieces of silver. Like why would I do this? And so it seems illogical. But what if, what if Judas in his mind thought Jesus wasn't taking the role of Messiah that Judas wanted him to? And so I want to put Jesus in a position where he confronts the chief priests and elders and Rome and uses his power as the Messiah to initiate his kingdom. And then I will have one of the 12 thrones that he has promised me. If that is a correct assessment of his motives, if it is, then it would make sense that when he hears that Jesus is being scourged and to be crucified, that his plan for the Messiah to take the throne is foiled, and that Judas is just totally distraught, because we read in the gospel narratives, and we'll talk about this later, that he commits suicide. Now, I'm just presenting that as an option. To me, in my mind, that makes a lot more sense than 30 pieces of silver. But that reference to 30 pieces of silver, I believe that the gospel writers are putting that in there because it's connected to that message in Zechariah. They're trying to connect Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, to Old Testament texts. Mike, let me add another one. As long as we're throwing out different possibilities— In the 2013 edition of the Scriptures, the Church added a Joseph Smith translation reference that I think might add some significant insight as to why. In Mark chapter 14, verse 10, it reads, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And Joseph Smith added this, that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray Jesus unto them. For he turned away from him and was offended because of his words. And I think there's a, there's a sermon there that Judas was offended because of something Jesus was teaching. Now look around and look at what's happening in the church today. How many people are offended because of some teaching? And they turn away and they walk away. I think that addition might throw in another possibility. It wasn't about money. It was about anger and revenge and because he felt offended. 
He wasn't seeking the monetary reward as much as he was trying to hurt Jesus because he was hurt by him, by his teachings, and was offended by his words. Another possibility, yeah, I like again. That. And I like that you're opening up that maybe it wasn't about money, and then what if, and I know this may be a stretch, but what if that Joseph Smith translation change and Judas's desire for the Messiah to take the throne are both related? What if Judas was offended because Jesus wasn't taking the role of Messiah that Judas wanted him to? What if Judas wanted Jesus to be the Jesus that he wanted him to be, and he didn't understand that Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, I am going to take the throne, but it's not on your timing, bro. Judas, you can't control this. And how many times do people who love the church want to force the church into the way they want it to be or their timetable? And I think if we combine that Joe Smith translation change and we just open our minds up a little bit to thinking that maybe it wasn't about money. Now, this isn't a podcast about Judas, but I just want to just, I guess what I'm trying to say is I want to read the Gospels as actual histories as well, that Jesus was a person and so was Judas. And these individuals have personalities. That's one reason why I love watching The Chosen. I love watching how the disciples actually argue with each other because that's what I would have done. If I was one of Jesus' disciples, that's what we do. I guarantee I would have argued with some of those guys. And I guarantee if I was Matthew, I would annoy people. And if I was one of the other apostles, Matthew would have annoyed me. And so anyway, I love that. I love looking at these people as people. Now, what then follows is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which they're going to gather as part of the Passover feast, and Jesus is going to have a final meal with his disciples. We call it the Last Supper. Several things happen during that Last Supper that I think are very applicable. Now, I'm going to approach this. I'm going to take what the text says and find meaning for me. Allow me to just point out a couple. First of all, one of my absolute favorite, what I call apostolic attitudes, comes from the Last Supper. Jesus announced, one of you which eateth with me shall betray me. Now, tell me how they responded. Now, sometimes we find ourselves reacting by pointing. I know who it is. It's that shifty-eyed Judas over there. He's the one. But that was not their attitude. I'm sorry, but you just made me laugh when you said the shifty-eyed Judas. That was classic. What I love about their apostolic attitude and a lesson I have taken from them is that they all said, Lord, is it I? So how about when you hear a particularly poignant message, either in general conference or at the podium in sacrament meeting, instead of thinking to yourself, boy, I sure wish so-and-so were here today, they sure needed to hear this, how about we all take an apostolic attitude to everything in the gospel and say, Lord, is it I? Am I the one? Is this for me? I love that brief moment, and may I just leave that with you as a lesson for all of us. When anything is said, may we take the attitude, am I the problem? And we ponder that. The second thing I want to talk about is the institution of the sacrament. Let's start with Matthew's account. In Matthew's King James Version, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat this is my body. Joseph Smith changed that. 
And if you look over the change, let me read the change, and you tell me what made this worth adding the change. What word is a significant addition? As they were eating, Jesus took bread and break it and blessed it and gave to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is in remembrance of my body, which I give as a ransom for you. I think the whole reason there's a Joseph Smith translation is to add that word, remembrance. Here's Matthew's version of the water. He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Joseph Smith's version. For this is in remembrance of my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for as many as shall believe on my name for the remission of their sins. Joseph didn't add a whole lot other than the word remembrance. Now let's turn to Mark. Mark 14, this is Mark's King James Version of the bread. As they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now here's Joseph Smith's rendition of that. As they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave to them and said, take it and eat. Behold, this is for you to do in remembrance of my body. For as oft as ye do this, ye will remember this hour that I was with you. Do you see what the significant addition was? He simply added the word remembrance. This is Mark's King James Version of the water. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Here's Joseph Smith's rendition in Mark. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is in remembrance of my blood, which is shed for many, and the New Testament which I give unto you, for of me ye shall bear record unto all the world. And as oft as ye do this ordinance, ye will remember me in this hour that I was with you and drank with you of this cup, even the last time in my ministry. So we have Matthew and Mark not including the word remembrance and Joseph Smith adding it. Now I find it very fascinating when we turn to the Luke edition. Luke 22, it says in verse 19 of Luke 22, He took bread and gave thanks and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now look at your footnote. What is interestingly missing? A JST edition. And maybe, I don't know, but maybe it's because Luke included the word remembrance. And I love that in Mark's JST version, Joseph adds, remember the hour that I was with you. Maybe the most important thing we do when we partake of the sacrament is we remember the time he has been with me. 
In our last podcast, we talked about the need to connect with Him, fill our vessel with oil by connecting with Him. And I will tell you one of the most important ways to do that is to simply remember the times you've had with Him. Perhaps we don't emphasize that enough. Sometimes we doctrinalize it and we talk about it and we we turn it into sermons, and maybe what we need is just time to remember. I think that is what I would teach my family, my students, about the institution of the sacrament. I wouldn't necessarily get into all the doctrine of the sacrament that might be appropriate in another place. Here, with what he's about to do on this night, what we really need to do is simply remember that he did it. That's good. Since we're in Luke already, I'm just going to use Luke, but this is also similarly referenced in Matthew. So look at verse 18. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. You see, this statement made by Jesus in Matthew 26, 29, and right here in Luke, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day come when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is significant in Christian tradition. It was commonly understood as a reference to the future time when Jesus will come and share a meal with his followers in what is commonly called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We can read about this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. This meal, I think you could read it as like a celebration of the ultimate victory of Jesus over the forces of darkness and a culmination of God's plan for everyone. The plan of happiness has been fulfilled. Death is conquered. Man is free. Christ has won the victory. It's like a victory meal or a victory celebration. I also think the phrase, the fruit of the vine, is also significant You see, wine is often a symbol for joy and celebration in the Jewish culture. It's really read that way in the Old Testament, but I understand why in the context of the latter days, the Lord says, hey, listen, we're not doing that anymore because of the circumstances of the world that we're in now. But in the context of the Old Testament, the fruit of the vine refers to the wine that Jesus and his disciples drank during this Passover meal, but it's also looking towards the future to what is often referred to as the eschatological feast in the kingdom of God, or the last day's feast in God's kingdom when he comes back. I also see verse 18 in Luke 22 as a reference to a great feast that Jehovah had with his followers on the top of the mountain, and that's Exodus 24, where Moses and 70 elders of Israel and Nadab and Abihu and Aaron, these guys go up to the top of the mountain, and it literally says in the text that they see the face of God and they eat with him and they're before his face. Ritually in the temple, that meal was in the Holy of Holies. This meal can be seen as like this community of faith that's been established through the covenant and the blood of the Lamb. It's a shared meal, and it's a beautiful sign of the bond between God and his people rooted in the covenant. 
And so the reference to this in Matthew and Luke's gospel really, to me, underscores the idea that the Last Supper is not only a commemoration of the Passover in antiquity, but it's also a symbol of the new covenant that Jesus is establishing right here with his followers, and it's to go forward into the future. But it's also looking forward to a time when the Roman empires of this world will no longer reign over us. In Jesus's day, it was the Rome of this world. No one liked that Rome was telling them what to do. This is our land. This is God's land and people and God's temple. How dare the Romans put up their symbols of their national power? How dare they set up a statue to their emperor in our holy places? And so to them, that was like an offense to God. And so by having this meal and by Jesus making that statement in Luke 22, 18, the kingdom of God shall come and this meal will happen. And so this meal can be read or seen as, as hope, an expectation or an anticipation of the day when everything will be fixed. And this is also referenced in section 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord talks about certain individuals that will be there at that feast. Now, I acknowledge that it's a male-centric text, and it's centering in on the men that are there. When I teach it in class, I like to mention their wives as well, because you know certainly Abraham wouldn't be Abraham if it wasn't for his wife and so forth. That meal, we practice that every Sunday. And I love how For 2,000 years, pretty much in every Christian tradition, they will break bread and they will eat it in remembrance of Jesus. And I think that is something that I'm so grateful that it's still carried through. I'm grateful that the text of the Bible has been preserved and the tradition of the sacrament in different Christian traditions carries forth to this day. I'm very grateful for that because in that is light and goodness. And I really do believe that. I believe that all Christian churches are trying their hardest to remember Jesus, and they're reading these passages with anticipation for the day when he will come back. Now, in Matthew's account, after he says that, I love what happens next. They're going to go out to Gethsemane now. But before they do that, they sing a hymn. He wanted to sing. He wanted them to sing. I think of that a lot. I think of Joseph Smith sitting in Carthage jail, knowing what was about to happen and asking John Taylor to sing a poor wayfaring man of grief. And before Jesus heads out to Gethsemane, sung a hymn. And then something happened on the way to Gethsemane. After they leave and they're headed out to the Mount of Olives, as they were walking towards Gethsemane, Jesus said, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. Now, I am positive they knew that Jesus was not one to lie or embellish or to speak in hyperbole. I think he was stating a reality. Tonight, all of you will be offended because of me. But watch Peter's reaction. I don't mean to demean Peter in any way. I love Peter with all my soul. But let me just point out an application. Peter says in the text, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus just gave a warning, and Peter's response was, not me. It won't happen to me. I won't fall. Others might, but I won't. Now, do you see that dangerous attitude in our day and age? 
the Lord gives a warning about movies, and I know a lot of people who say, well, it's fine for me. That's a great warning for other people, but I'm immune to that. It's not a problem for me. Though all men, yet will I not. That's when Jesus turns and says to Peter, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Now, I think it's significant that he used the symbol of a rooster. Walking around the hen house, chest puffed out, that was Peter in that moment symbolically, overconfident in his ability to resist temptation. Notice how he responds to that when Jesus told him that before the cock crows, he will deny him thrice. Peter said, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. In fact, in Mark's account, it says, he spake more vehemently though I should die with thee. Peter's overconfidence is going to be a problem because being overconfident, he's going to put himself in a position where he's not as strong as he thinks he is, and in that position, he will deny Christ. He walked right into the high priest's palace. Maybe he should have gone home. Maybe he should have stayed with the other apostles. I don't know. But I know that in my case and in my life and in the life of so many people that I love, when I am like Peter, all puffed up in my confidence, confident that though all men would, I won't, and I put myself in a vulnerable position, it was foolish of me to do so. This is a lesson from Peter. Peter the rooster, Peter. It's interesting, Bryce, that you mentioned rooster because the traditional and probably accurate location of the high priest palace where all this is going down, that is named after the rooster. The church of St. Peter in Galicantu is high above the Hinnom Valley on the western hill of Jerusalem. Then it was inside the city walls, and later it was known as Mount Zion or Mount Zion. A 4th century traveler to Jerusalem nicknamed the Pilgrim of Bordeaux said this about this location. In the same valley of Siloam, you go up from Mount Zion and you see the site where the house of Caiaphas stood. And today it's known as St. Peter Gallicantu. In the 5th century after Christ, a church was built on this site and the crusaders later named it Gallicantus or the cock crow. In modern times, you can go there and visit it in Jerusalem. There's a scourging room or this room down underground, and there's a courtyard there, and there's artifacts, and even a Hebrew inscription has been unearthed on the site that's consistent with the expectations associated with the residents of the high priest. And so what's interesting there is that later followers of Christ named it the Church of St. Peter in Galicantu, named after, as it were, that idea of the rooster. Now, let me give you another example of that. Joseph Smith, when he talks about the night Moroni came and talked about the fact that his, he didn't have the right kind of friends that would have kept him, said that he fell into the weakness of youth. I have thought a lot about that phrase the weakness of youth. That's singular. He had just said foolish errors, plural, and foibles of human nature. But in Joseph Smith history, verse 28, Joseph mentions the weakness of youth, singular. 
I fell into the weakness of youth. Now, I don't know exactly what he meant. I can't wait to talk to him and ask him. But knowing the rest of the story, think about the last warning Moroni gave before Joseph headed to Camorra to see the plates for the first time. The last thing Moroni said was this. He added a caution to me, telling me that Satan would try to tempt me in consequence of the indigent circumstances of my father's family to get the plates for the purpose of getting rich. This he forbade me, saying that I must have no other object in view in getting the plates but to glorify God and must not be influenced by any other motive than that of building his kingdom, otherwise I couldn't get them. The last thing he heard from an angel floating in the air was, Joseph, Satan's going to try and tempt you to get these plates to get rich. Don't do it. Now, according to Oliver Cowdery's letters... On that very first visit to Camorra, guess what consumed his head? Thoughts of getting rich. In other words, perhaps the weakness of youth is this overconfidence of Peter and the rooster that I can think of these things and it's going to be okay. Even though I was just warned, how many youth, how many people are told not to do something. They're warned over and over again, and yet they get caught up in the thrill of the moment. They walk into the high priest's palace and end up doing something they will regret. This reminds me of what we talked about last week, where we don't know what we don't know. That's why we need a coach. I remember one time I had a swim coach who would film my lap swimming because my laps, I was incredibly average. I was doing triathlons and I wanted to get better. And she filmed it and she showed me, do you see where you're putting your hand? Okay, you're doing it wrong. You need to do it this way. And sometimes because we don't know what we don't know, we need someone on the outside to say, hey, hey, Bryce, you might want to check this. And I know for you, it's Jennifer. For me, it's Sonia. We have to have someone to check Oliver Cowdery will point that out, that Joseph didn't have enough experience nor anyone to check him. And so may I just raise a warning voice from Peter on this dark night where Jesus is going to be taken into custody. He was warned, you're going to be offended by me. His response was, not me. Everyone else might, but I won't. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And he vehemently denied Let that be a lesson to all of us. Don't let our overconfidence in our own strength cause us to go into somewhere we shouldn't go and do something we shouldn't do. Uh, How many times have people ended up addicted to substances or homeless because of a drug addiction, and yet the first day they tried that drug, I doubt they thought, you know what would be awesome if I was homeless? and completely destitute and addicted to drugs. No one thinks like that. We all think we're the exception. Overconfidence. So can I invite all of you parents listening, all of you teachers listening, to print a picture of a rooster and put it in your house somewhere. Put it in your classroom. Send it to your children or your youth. Tell them the story about Peter being overconfident and let that rooster be a symbol to don't let your overconfidence, that it's not going to happen to you, that you're immune, that you're not capable of falling, 
and then they go somewhere foolish and they do fall. I think there's a great message in that rooster. Now, is that exactly what happened to Peter that night? Is there some other options? Was he perhaps told to deny Christ? There's a lot of theories out there, and I'm not trying to sway that one way or another. I just find great application in the way the text presents it in terms of his overconfidence and then going into the text. But there are some other theories, right, Mike? There are. And I want to just say this, Bryce. I think what you just presented is the way most of us read the text. And so the mainstream reading of, of the text is what Bryce just talked about, and it's beautiful. There are obviously other things happening here, and like we talked about with Judas with motives, you know, it's complicated, and, and I certainly don't know, but sometimes we read some of these things and we say, okay, does this fit with the circumstance? And what I mean by that is, would the chief possibly be really worried about a damsel asking him, are you a follower? This is Matthew 26, 69. Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel, Pideske, came to him, and she said, you were with Jesus of Galilee. And you know, there are scholars out there that say, okay, this would not cause him to necessarily deny that he's a follower of Jesus. Um, would she be that intimidating of a figure is kind of the question that uh, historians look at when they when they analyze this. Now, just to show you how complicated the issue is, John 18 says that she was a damsel that kept the door. So others will argue that it, the possibility was that he didn't feel like he could get in unless he lied. And so he lied to her because she was the keeper of the door and wasn't going to let him in. So that's just how complicated this issue is. And we just don't have all the information. So I just wanted to throw that out there. There's so much happening, and what we have is fragmentary, and I really like President Kimball's Peter, my brother, and we linked it in the show notes, but he throws a couple questions out there. One of them is, is Peter really somebody who's afraid? And then he quotes some of these interesting passages. He says, speaking of Peter, he says, later, defying the people and the church and the state, Peter boldly charged Christ ye have taken, and by wicked hands you have crucified and slain him. That's Acts 2.23. To the astounded populace at the healing of the cripple at the gate beautiful in the city of Jerusalem, Peter exclaimed, Ye men of Israel, the God of our fathers has glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate. You denied the Holy One, and you killed the Prince of Life, whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are all witnesses. That's Acts 3, 12 through 15. And then President Kimball asks this question, does this portray cowardice? Quite a bold assertion for someone who's so timid. President Kimball then opens up this possibility. What might we attribute Peter's denial to? And then he says, perhaps it could be attributed to Jesus himself, to a request or a command that he made that Peter should deny knowing him, not to deny his divinity, but to deny knowing him as the religious rebel the Jewish leaders saw him to be. Why, President Kimball asks, to ensure Peter's safety as chief apostle and to ensure the continuity and safety of the Quorum of the Twelve. Now, that isn't without precedence. Remember, Abraham was told when he went into Egypt, say that Sariah is your sister. Yeah. Now, not to be too nerdy with this, but I'm going to get a little bit nerdy. In the Greek, the, the language of the New Testament, 
that was then translated into English in the King James. What Jesus uses in the Greek, the writers that are writing this, is a future tense. So he is basically saying, you will deny me. That's a future. Depends on when you read and depends on context. And translators have to make these decisions. But sometimes a future can be read as a command. Now I'm acknowledging by saying this, it undoes everything I said back in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, you will be teleway. You will be perfected. It can be read as an imperative. And so translators have to find ways to communicate ideas. And sometimes what you say or write can be read a couple different ways. Everyone listening to this podcast who has received a text message, I guarantee this has happened where you read it one way and the sender meant it another way. So just simply in its Greek, Jesus is saying, you will deny me, but a future can be read as an imperative, but it depends. I know it's nerdy, but I think it's important. And President Kimball opens up that window that it's a command. If this is interesting to you, if this is something you want to pull on this thread, we put quite a bit in the show notes and we even link it to some really cool sites and another great scholar who I happen to admire, John Hall, professor of classics at BYU for many years. His view is it is an imperative. He says, yes, certainly. I'm sitting in the space of, I don't know, but I want to grant Peter grace. But I'm not trying to undermine everything Bryce just said about overconfidence because I think on the sermon level, that's powerful preaching that we should walk away from this and ask ourselves, Lord, is it I? Yeah, am I overconfident? And and by the way, we all are, just on different things. Like We all have to acknowledge it. And we need somebody on the outside to check us. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> we, need to, we need to get checked. Now, just to throw all the cards on the table, just so you can ponder all of these things, if we entertain the idea that it was an imperative, it was a command, it was an invitation to deny him, you're going to have to wrestle with Luke chapter 22, verses 61 and 62. You're going to have to wrestle with what these verses mean. I'm just going to read them. The end of verse 60, it says, Immediately while he spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. That's what the text adds. So a lot of things happened that night. We don't know all things, but I think there's value in us saying, what can I learn? How can I learn to be a better disciple of Christ by some of the things that were said in the text? That's key to me. Now, next they go to Gethsemane, and this is where the Savior suffers, and we're going to save that for our next podcast. We'd like to just deal with that after we talk about John's version of the Last Supper. It's a good connection because John's going to say things like, greater love hath no man than this, that a man layeth down his life for his friends. And then we can talk about what happened in Gethsemane. What happened? What did he do? It is core to our doctrine. And the New Testament is not going to teach the doctrine of the atonement. And so Mike and I feel compelled to add it because we can't get so caught up in the events of that night that we miss the doctrine of what he really did that night. So we'll spend some time in our next podcast talking about the doctrine of atonement. But we want to talk about the prayer he gave prior to going into Gethsemane. 
We call it the intercessory prayer. It's John 17. We're going to pull that into this week's podcast because it's very related to the events of that night, and then we'll just talk about those other two subjects in next week's podcast. So the intercessory prayer, one of the great contributions of Scripture to all of our lives. The depth of this prayer, the doctrine that it teaches, the insight that it gives is astounding. It we really could spend is. a lot of time just on this prayer. My mission president had it memorized. <laughs> I remember he would just like quote it. I'm like, and I was blown away, but then I'm like, it's only 26 verses, but it's so good. So Jesus is going to stand as high priest and he's going to come to his father and pray and he's going to pray for some really powerful things. There's a lot of temple themes in this prayer. I'm just going to read this excellent commentary from William Hamblin. He says, John 17 should be contextualized within the larger Passover narrative of the last days of the life of Jesus. In John 11 and 12, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, followed by his anointing by Mary and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In John 13, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And like Bryce said, we're going to talk about that next week. And this parallels a temple ritual since feet needed to be clean before entering the temple precinct. As the Mishnah emphasizes, a man may not enter into the temple mount with dust upon his feet. Then on Passover evening, Jesus gives the last discourse to his disciples found in John 13 through 17. We're going to talk about that next week. In John 17, we have the conclusion of the discourse and we have an extended prayer. This is where Jesus blesses his disciples. It is immediately followed by his departure to Gethsemane, his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, and finally his resurrection in John chapter 20. So in Hamblin's opinion, he says, this chapter, John 17, holds a central position in the gospel. It's the transition point between Jesus's mortal ministry and the return to celestial glory. In essence, John 17 serves as a symbolic temple for the gospel of John. It is the meeting place between heaven and earth where man encounters God. Then William Hamblin talks about six temple themes in John 17, and they're powerful. The first is that Christ is given the name of the Father by the Father. Now, there was a long tradition of the sacred secrecy of God's name, which in some of the traditional strains of Judaism could only be pronounced by the priest at the temple. So this idea that Christ is given the name of the Father by the Father is important in a temple context, because then we read in John 17, verses 6 and 26, that Jesus references that he made his Father's name known to his disciples. Look in verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. That's important. Now note that the name of the Father is given to Christ. We see that in verse 11 and 12. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And so Jesus has been given the name, but he's made it known to his apostles. And then we have this powerful message about glory. There's 26 verses in this chapter. It's a powerful chapter. Six of those 26 verses talk about doxa or the glory of God. 
And this glory is something that's transferred. It goes down to Jesus and to his disciples, but it goes up to the Father. So note that Christ glorifies the Father. Look at verse 1. Thy Son may glorify thee. We read that also in verse 4 where Jesus says, I have glorified thee on the earth. So Christ glorifies his Father. That's the third temple theme in John 17. But Christ's glory comes from God. We read that in John 5 verse 44 and John 8 verse 54. So to reiterate, the first temple theme is Christ has been given the name of the Father by the Father. The second temple theme is that Christ has made known his Father's name to his disciples. And the third is that he has glorified his Father. Now the fourth is very interesting. In glorifying his Father, Jesus has transferred glory to his followers. Look in John 17, verse 22. The glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one as we are. Then look at verse 24. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. You see, by following Jesus, mortal men are able to have the glory that's been transferred from the Father to the Son, and they're able to be partakers of that glory. There's two more temple themes that Hamblin lays out in his paper that are so powerful. Look in verse 15. Jesus makes this statement in his prayer. He says, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. The evil one in this chapter or in this reference is cast out. And you see at the beginning of the discourse, Jesus informs his hearers that the ruler of this cosmos will be thrown out. Now remember, this discourse, like Bryce mentioned earlier in the podcast, really starts in chapter 12. And it just proceeds all the way through 12 and 13 and 14. These are all one sitting. So go back to 12. And I know... We covered this a long time ago, so I would encourage you to sit down and read it and read the whole thing. You just got to read the Gospel of John, like the whole thing. But look in verse 31 of chapter 12. Now is the judgment of this world, or this cosmos. Now the prince of this world shall be cast out. You see, because Satan is cast out by Christ, the disciples are protected from his power, as described in John 17, verse 15. The ritual expulsion of evil from the community of Israel was symbolized in ancient times by the temple scapegoat ritual. So you really got to go back to Leviticus and read the Day of Atonement ritual and understand that this scapegoat, now it's not in the Bible, but in the, in the outside text, it's, this scapegoat is called Azazel. Azazel is thrown out. And that scapegoat that's got to be thrown out is indicative of the evil one that's being cast out in John 17, verse 15. I might even have the translation here. Tereses autus ectu poneru, that you might guard them from the poneros, the wicked one. I love that word, tereses. It's this idea of guarding. 
teresais in, in uh, John 17, 15, keep, a similar thing in, in Hebrew with shamar. Shamar can be keep or protect. And so I really like this idea of teresais autus ectu poneru, as you might guard them from the poneros, the wicked one. I love that. Jesus is begging his father, protect my people from the evil one. Satan is cast out. Now, if you think about the temple, in the temple drama, Satan is cast out. We read that in Moses 1, Satan is cast out. And it's in the Day of Atonement ritual where Azazel, or the, the wicked one, is cast out. And finally, the sixth temple theme here in John 17 is that Jesus is the great high priest. And notice what the great high priest does in the Day of Atonement ritual. This is in Leviticus 16.6, 16.4. It's really kind of throughout Leviticus 16 is the great high priest becomes sanctified so that he can do his duty. Look at verse 19. In John 17, verse 19, Jesus says, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. So those six temple themes are so important Christ is given the name of the Father. He's given it to his followers. He glorifies his Father, and the Father transfers his glory to Jesus and his followers. The wicked one is cast out, and Jesus is the sanctified high priest. And this is where I think Hamblin's argument has the most power. What is the point? The point of all this is so the followers may make their ascent. They may be one with the Father. Verses 20 through 24, in my opinion, embody not only the main point of the prayer, but of the gospel. And I'm just going to read the words. They're so powerful. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. Think about that. We hear the words of the apostles. We read the words of the scriptures. Jesus prays for you that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. There's three main themes here that I think Jesus is hitting on. Glorification, ascent, and unification. The glory that the Father has given the Son, Jesus wants to give to the followers. Secondly, and it doesn't say it explicitly here in the English, but it's all about ascent. Look what he says in verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. You see, next week, we're going to see this in John 14. The question is, Jesus, where are you going? Help us find the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. And then he drops this powerful phrase. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Polemone. That word mansions can mean mansions, but it also means like stopping places along the way of the ascent. And the ancients believed that there was a temple in heaven and there was a temple on earth, and the temple in heaven replicated the temple on earth. And so when Jesus says, I pray for them, John 17, verse 24, that they may be with me where I am, the idea is that Jesus is going to ascend to the heavenly temple. 
Now we're going to see this repeated when Mary embraces him. And he says, I have not yet ascended up there. He's basically praying here to his father that his followers will be able to not only receive his glory, but to ritually ascend to the temple in heaven. And then finally, his prayer is for one of unification. If you combine all these ideas, the unification of the saints, them receiving glory, and being able to ascend, you combine all those ideas, you have a powerful teaching in the first few centuries of Christianity that was lost, and that idea is theosis or deification. The idea that followers of Christ can become even as he is, that they can become divine, sons and daughters of Christ, glorified. That's the prayer. That's the purpose of the gospel. And it's right here in the great intercessory prayer. And what I would add is this is Thursday, Thursday evening sometime. Earlier on Tuesday, he had been asked a question, what is the greatest of all the commandments, or what is the first commandment? And he had summarized them all into two by saying the first foremost greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is to love your neighbor. Now watch what he does. He takes that to a next level in this prayer. He starts by praying that we be one with the Father. Look at verses 21 and 23, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. So not just love the Father, but be one with the Father. That means I need to want what the Father wants. I need to think what the Father thinks. My desires need to match the Father's desires. Jesus is praying that I be one with God. He repeats it in verse 23, I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Now, the second oneness he prays for is different. Back in verse 11 of John 17, he prays, Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. That's oneness with each other. Father, let them be one with each other as you and I are one with each other. Let our oneness become a pattern for their oneness. Oneness with man follows oneness with God. The first commandment is to love God. Can we then extend it to and be one with him? The second commandment is to love man, and let's extend it to and be one with them. And so he says again in verse 22, the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. So as I not only see what Mike is telling us, but I see an extension of the two great commandments to become one. Now, if I were to again draw a line, my oneness with God would be a line going up and down. My oneness with man would be a line going horizontal, and there is the cross. That's communion. This one, and by the way, communion, we're eating together. So think about the Christian concept of eating the sacrament at the foot of Jesus at the cross. We're seeing that stuff right here, right? And see the symbolism of one loaf of bread divided amongst us. We are one loaf of bread. And so I think this prayer pleads with us to not just love God, but be one with God. That means 
his desires need to be my desires. What he wants for me needs to be what I want for me. And then we need to work on oneness with each other. I need to work on oneness with my spouse. She is the foremost human with whom I need to be one. And then perhaps my children and grandchildren, my colleagues, my ward members, my neighbors, the other people of my country and my nation. I need to pursue oneness with my neighbor. A good symbol of oneness with your neighbor is imagine, and the early Christians did this, they would pray in a circle for God to be with them. And by the way, the, a great symbol for the marriage, I'm wearing it on my hand. A ring. Right? Now think about prayers we make in circles. The early Christians did do this. Hugh Nibley has written extensively on this idea as he's analyzed the text of the early Christians, and they did practice praying in a circle. And if you go to a lot of these old Catholic churches or Greek Orthodox churches that they have above the altar, the Pantocrator, it's a circle as it were. And there's some images of angels wearing holy robes in a circle on a lot of these basilicas. It's not hard to find. And there are a lot of scholars that look at this idea that the Pantocrator represents God as the like the ruler over all things, the ruler of the universe, and angels in a circle, and you know it could be connected here. And then remember First Nephi chapter one, when Lehi makes his ascent, he saw numberless concourses of angels, and a concourse can be a circle. So we have angels around the throne of God. Now, when you go to the book of Revelation, John makes his ascent. He makes an ascent, remember, and that was the whole point, right? Come to be where, with me where, where I am. So he ascends into the heavenly temple, and he sees 24 thronos. Now, it's translated as seats, which is a horrible translation, but uh, he sees 24 thrones with the elders wearing uh, white robes around the throne of God. So it's when all When Alma... After he repents, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me, and he makes an ascent. He says, methought I saw, even as our father Lehi saw, God sitting upon his throne, surrounded there it is. with numberless concourses of angels in the attitude of singing and praising their God, and my soul did long to be there. He wanted to join them praising him. Yeah. Now, that's a beautiful oneness in both of them coming together. I want to join you in singing praises to him. And let's be real, Bryce. Don't you love Thanksgiving? Your family comes over, you're eating with your family. It's the ultimate symbol of oneness. So in the early Christian church, what did they do? They got together and they had a meal. What did they do? They talked about Jesus. Why? Because he's the reason. He's the reason why we're here. Now, that leads us to the arrest. After his atoning sacrifice, after his suffering in that garden— here comes Judas with the arresting officers, and Jesus is going to be taken into custody. Because we're doing the whole atonement stuff next time. Yep. Just a couple beautiful thoughts here before we end. Yeah. So if you go to Luke 22, 47 through 48, we find Jesus in a garden. And this is how it reads. While he yet spake, behold, a multitude... And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas's kiss has become the hallmark event of the night of the betrayal. 
I think when we reflect on this, it really brings the shock and intensity with this moment. It really helps us see one of his own apostles has betrayed his loyalty to Jesus. And this really makes it difficult. Joseph Smith, speaking on friendship and loyalty, said this. He says, I don't care what a man's character is. If he's my friend, a true friend, I will be a friend to him and preach the gospel of salvation to him and give him good counsel, helping him out in his difficulties. Friendship is one of the grand fundamental principles of the restored gospel. It is designed to revolutionize and civilize the world and to cause wars and contentions to cease and men to become friends and brothers. It's a time-honored adage, Joseph Smith says, that love begets love. Let us pour forth love, show forth our kindness to all mankind, and the Lord will reward us with everlasting increase. Cast our bread upon the waters, and we shall receive it after many days increased to a hundredfold. So this kiss is the height of irony. The gospel writers are really using this image to portray one of his inner circle turning Jesus over to those authorities. Now, John doesn't talk about the kiss. So if you go to John chapter 18, Judas received a band of men that show up to arrest Jesus. We read a kind of a little bit of a different account of the betrayal. And this was not the time for him to be taken. And so he just passed by through their midst and went his way. And this is beautiful because we got to go back to Luke chapter 4. Do you remember how Jesus began his ministry? He walks into the synagogue in Nazareth, quotes Isaiah, and says, This day is this scripture fulfilled in thine ears, in essence proclaiming that he was the Messiah. And they rise up to stone him, and they start carrying up to the hill of the city, and they're going to throw him down and kill him. And then the scripture simply says, But he passing through the midst of them went his way. It wasn't his time. They were not allowed to throw him over. And he just exercising his power, exercising his influence, he overawed them. And there is power in that righteousness. There is power that we can tap into, that God's purposes will not fail. Now, knowing that, watch what happens on the night he's arrested. The only way this happens is because he allows it to happen. He has total control over this situation. When the band shows up, verse 4, this is John 18, verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. There's that power. This is Joseph Smith in Richmond, Jen. Silence, ye fiends of the infernal pit. This is that tap into divine power. They went backward and fell to the ground. And he asked again, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. Now, given that, given the fact that they fell backwards, he had total power here. 
He could have waved them aside like he did in Nazareth when he began his ministry. But this is his hour. This is the moment for him to surrender and let them have power over him. And so even though they still sense that power and they don't dare take him, it is evidence to all of us that everything that happened was because he allowed it to happen. Now, let me just push on that today. We'll talk about it again next week. I would testify that Jesus had an off switch the whole time. But by pressing that off switch, he loses you. He had total power over every foe, every enemy that tried to destroy him, everyone that wanted to hurt him. And he gave himself to them because he knows what the outcome is. You are the outcome. Saving you was worth this. And so he gave himself to them. Beautiful moment of surrender. Now that's a lesson he has to teach Peter who hasn't yet learned that lesson. Peter pulls out his sword and he cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. This is all John 18.10. And the writer says, the servant's name was Malchus. And then Jesus said to Peter, put thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink of it? And the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. I love this quote by Elder Neil A. Maxwell, where he says, The living prophets are not perfect, but they live close to him who is. It is no real reflection on them that in their imperfections, these great men at times wish to hold back or hasten history. Peter smote off the ear of the one who came to take Jesus captive. Peter did not understand that the arrest of Jesus should not be arrested because the unfolding events would move from Gethsemane to Golgotha and then to an empty grave, all of which he would witness and preach about for years afterward. Such a good quote by Elder Maxwell. I think it's so powerful for a lot of reasons, but one of them is the acknowledgement that the prophets were not perfect. And I want to just say this, that Peter stood up for Jesus. Peter literally could have been killed, and he stood up for him. Now, one biblical scholar reading this story of Jesus telling Peter to put his sword away put it this way, these are not the words of a violent revolutionary. End time schemes often included a great battle between the people of light and the people of darkness, and Jesus certainly expected violence, but his own followers were to stay clear of it. And that really is Jesus' teaching. He's telling Peter, put your sword away, just let this happen. The arrest of the master is not to be arrested. The final event of this podcast that we're going to speak of is the arrest of Jesus and the disciples who run away. Jesus knows what it's like to have his friends leave. Now, there's a very puzzling bit in the Mark narrative. If you go to Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, we read, There followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now, we don't know who this individual is, but if you're interested in pulling that thread of how different Christians over the centuries have interpreted that passage, well, go to the show notes. We have some good stuff in there for you. Now, that being said, that's not the main thing. 
But I think the main thing, or at least one of them, is that Jesus knows what it's like to have his friends leave. The shepherd is smitten and the sheep flee. And he's alone. He's alone with his captors. Now we're going to pause here and end this podcast. Next week, we will tackle John's account of the Last Supper. He saw things differently. And he begged us to come back and see Jesus differently. And then we will tackle the doctrine of the atonement. We want to talk about what he really accomplished in Gethsemane. And then we will resume this conversation and we'll pick it up with the trial. And Jesus is going to be tried and sentenced and then sent to the cross. But we leave you with our plea and our witness that this man is exactly what we claim him to be. And this is his defining moment. This was the day he paid for us. May we never forget that. Like he instituted in the sacrament, may that be a sacred word for all of us to just remember him always. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we talk about John chapters 14 through 17. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.